the 24th chapter of Acts, and we continue to look at the Acts of the Holy Spirit, I uh, want to just remind you where we've really come through up to this point, at least uh, in the last several weeks. What we saw in chapter 19 is the beginning of the third missionary journey uh, by the Apostle Paul. And as he was going about to encourage churches and uh, come alongside them on the third missionary journey, he was also going about taking up a collection. And he was taking up a collection because the church in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times. There was a famine in the land of Judea. It actually something that had been right about. And so there was this famine in the land, and uh, Paul was going to bring an offering to the early church in Jerusalem as a way to help things along a little bit. And so he's got this desire to help his Jewish brethren, and yet his desire is actually going to bring about uh, even more questions. In fact, as he brings the offering in Acts 21 to present there to James, uh, James is thankful for the offering. He's praising the Lord for what's going on in the Gentile church, but then quickly is going to shift and say, would you mind proving to us just how Jewish you are? There's some questions, some concerns that you've walked away from tradition, from true Judaism. Can you prove how Jewish you really are? And so as a result of that, Paul agrees, he acquiesces to their request, and he takes four men into the temple where they could finish their time of a Nazarite vow. And Paul's place in this is he's actually going to take the offering that he raised from all these Gentile churches, and he's essentially going to give it to the temple. You could actually look at it and say he, he wasted the offering that was meant for the early church. And so he goes to the temple with these four men, and while he's there, he is spotted by some Jews from Asia Minor. Now, these are the same guys that have wanted to uh, kill him during his entire ministry. And so they spot Paul on the Temple Mount, and an all-out hit breaks out. So violent does the riot get that the Roman soldiers come down from the Antonio Fortress. I showed you a beautiful map. You guys love maps, I could tell. I didn't put it up for you this week, but the fortress is located on the edge, the north edge of the Temple Mount. They come down from the fortress, rescue Paul, and bring him into the barracks where they could question him. Now what they find is that Paul was in fact a Roman citizen. So is, with his Roman citizenship, it means any charges, he is supposed to have a lawful trial brought up against him if they have any validity. And so Paul requests before they leave this place that he could address the crowd. And in chapter 22, Paul addresses the crowd gathered there on the Temple Mount. And what he essentially does is he doesn't give them doctrine. He doesn't give them theology. He gives them his testimony. He shares with them something that they cannot argue with, and that is his own personal experience with Jesus Christ. And in the summation of his testimony, they wanted to know the truth about the Apostle Paul. They basically couldn't handle the truth. Much like Jack Nicholson here, right? They could not handle the truth, which was Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he eventually shares with them. And as, as they heard this, that Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, they again attack Paul. They want to tear limb from limb because for the Jews, they, they thought the Gentiles were worth nothing more than fodder for the fires of hell. That's how much value they put on a Gentile. And so they uh, go back after Paul again. He is brought then back inside the barracks. And in chapter 23, in order to understand why they were so incensed at uh, the apostle Paul, the leader, the commander of the Roman army, Lysias, he brings Paul to appear before the Sanhedrin. 
And there he, he appears before the Sanhedrin, and he starts off by basically being punched right in the mouth. That's how his uh, testimony in front of this crowd begins. And so in verse 3, Paul uh, reacts rather than responds. And by the way, there's always a danger when we react instead of responding. I know none of you would ever react when someone smacks you in the face, but some of us would. And so this is a danger zone for Paul, and he actually responds to the high priest, and he calls him a whitewashed tomb. In other words, you're an old bag of dead bones. That's how he responds to the high priest. Now, moving on from there, as Paul reacts instead of responds, the whole situation gets out of hand, and Paul is whisked away once again as a riot breaks out, even in the Sanhedrin, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And now Paul is reeling. And what God communicates to him in verse 11, the the key to that chapter was uh, the Lord told him, I'm with you, Paul. I am right here. I am standing beside you. I have got your back. I'm right along with you. And so the Lord communicates that to him in verse 11. And then, as we wrapped up last week, we see the plan to kill Paul is foiled as Lysias, the commander, is able to get him safely out of Jerusalem and to Felix, the governor of Judea, at Caesarea Maritima. So that is where we are actually going to be this morning, is in Caesarea Maritima in chapter 24. Now, before we get there, I want to share just a couple of pictures with you from Caesarea Maritima. A little sidebar, these are uh, actual photos that I took a few years ago in Israel. Uh, going to encourage you guys over the next few years to pray about uh, in two years, we are going to hopefully take a group, if the Lord wills it, allows us to be able to travel overseas like this to the Holy Land. Uh, this is one of the hot spots, the number one locations that people want to see because of its amazing beauty and the architecture and the ruins that are left behind. This area was constructed by uh, Herod the Great right along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And what you're looking at uh, on the left, on the far left of the leftmost picture, that is the actual uh, ruins and the foundation of the palace that Herod built for himself overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. So just a beautiful area there. And then to the right of that, stay on the picture to the left, but look at the, what you see is a flat area. That's actually a racetrack for chariot races. So Herod constructed his own NASCAR track. I mean, who doesn't want to watch NASCAR right outside your palace? So he loved the days of thunder, Rubens racing Harry. He's got the NASCAR track going on right outside his palace. And then maybe the most beautiful spot, in my opinion, is the amphitheater. Located just behind the palace is this wonderful amphitheater that is still largely intact to this day where we had the opportunity to actually worship with other Christians and hear a teaching from Acts 24 when we were there in Israel. And so a beautiful setting that you find here at Caesarea Maritima. Now, after the longest introduction in history... Let's start in chapter 24. Verse 1 says, Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus, and these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And so now we see Ananias, the high priest, the same high priest that ordered Paul to be smacked right in the face in chapter 23. He comes into chapter 24, and this time he doesn't come alone. He comes uh, with a posse. He's got a whole entourage, and he's got his number one attorney along with him. 
Uh, this guy, uh, Tertullus, would be like you wanting to defend yourself. You bring along Johnny Cochran. God rest his soul, right? If it does not fit, you must acquit. That's the kind of high-powered attorney that is being brought by Ananias in order to testify against, bring charges against the Apostle Paul. Now, this trip from Jerusalem to Caesarea is about a three-day journey. And if you look historically, Ananias is uh, thought to be around 80 years old at this time. So he makes, a, at 80 years old, a three-day journey and brings along a defense attorney along with an entire entourage, all because he hated Paul that much. I mean, this guy really despised the Apostle Paul. Now, verse 2, And when he was called upon, speaking of Tertullus, he began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through, that through you we enjoy great peace, the end prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. And so what Tertullus is doing here is he begins his uh, plea to Felix is called flattery. He is beginning to butter up uh, Felix. He is speaking to him about the great peace that they have enjoyed, when uh, reality is that is a flat-out stinking lie from the pit of hell. There were going all over. The reason Paul is here is because a riot broke out on the Temple Mount. There was no peace in the land, and the great prosperity that he speaks to, Felix had taxed the Jewish people to the point where they were starving to death. They couldn't stand Felix, which brings me to the next point. That is, he comments on how thankful we are. We are so thankful for you, Felix. What a bunch of baloney. They hated Felix, but he's buttering him up with compliments, and Felix is eating it up. In fact, Proverbs 29, verse 5, Solomon makes this very clear what we should think about flattery when someone comes to you to flatter you. Uh, Proverbs 29, 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. <laughs> it's a trap. That's precisely what Tertullus is trying to do. He's trying to set a trap for Felix to hem him in to accuse the Apostle Paul. Now, verse 5, For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accuser to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And then verse 9, And the Jews who also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So Tertullus is now bringing about these charges against Paul, that he is an inciter of riots. Now, in the Roman Empire, if uh, there is one thing they hated more than all other, it is someone rioting in the land. In fact, the army would come in and stamp that out uh, almost immediately. This is why Paul is here. They would not stand for this, and anyone who's thought to bring about riots would be dealt with uh, extremely harshly. This is the accusation that Tertullus is making. And notice with me in verse 5, he associates Paul as the ringleader, like this is some kind of circus. That's how it looks like when we go on vacation sometimes. That guy's the ringleader. All right. But he is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, notice with me, he's connecting Paul with Jesus of Nazareth. And so there were two uh, predominant things that they would call the church 
early on. They didn't really call them Christians all that much in the New Testament. They were called the way, and they were called Nazarenes. Now, this might seem lovely because we think of the Nazarene church, but the reality was they did not mean it to be lovely. They meant it to be disparaging that Jesus was from the lowly town of Nazareth. In fact, even Jesus' own disciples weren't all that excited about where he was from initially. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 46, calling of Nathanael, who would be a disciple, they, they tell Nathanael with great excitement, hey, we found the Messiah. He's like, oh, this is awesome. He's from Nazareth. Wait, what? Nathanael's response was, Nazareth? What good thing could come from Nazareth? Now to us, I'm going to scan the room and make sure I don't get in trouble. Okay, I think I'm good. It would be like someone coming to you and saying, we found the Messiah, he's from Martinsville. Ugh, Martinsville, what good thing could come from Martinsville? I mean, we don't even know what a blue streak is. What does that mean? All right, so this is what they thought when they said Jesus of Nazareth. They meant that to be very disparaging. I love you, blue streaks. Don't get upset if you're from Martinsville. But needless to say, Paul is being referred to as a Nazarene for the intent to actually disparage him. Now in verse 7, we note that he goes on to say that the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took Paul from their hands. He's claiming they were attempting to actually bring Paul about on trial uh, to, to let their law actually play out. But how did it look when we read through the story? They were trying to tear Paul to pieces. There was no trial happening. There was no fairness happening. And Lysias didn't take him uh, by violence. He took him away from violence. And so Tertullus is twisting the story, how it happens so often. And then in verse 9, And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. This is now the entourage that is with Ananias, saying, Yes, we agree that what has taken place is true. We confer, we concur that Paul's a pest. He is a plague, he is a pest, he's a dirty rat. That's essentially their case against the Apostle Paul. Now, verse 10, And then Paul... After the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So here's the Apostle Paul. It's him versus essentially Johnny Cochran of the ancient world and all the entourage, and Paul is his own defense attorney. He's standing up, but he does it. Isn't it interesting? He does so cheerfully. He's actually excited that he gets to be his own defense attorney. And the reason is because he's not alone. What did Jesus tell him in chapter 23, verse 11? He said, I am by your side. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This is what John says, speaking of Jesus Christ. He says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, if we sin, if we fall short, anybody here falling short? You don't have to raise your hands. It's okay. Um, if you've fallen short, we have an advocate. The word in the Greek is actually a parakleton, and it means a defense attorney. It's a legal phrase. We have a defense attorney, and his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. This is why Paul can be cheerful in this spot to stand up for himself because he's not alone at all. 
And I want to share that with you to encourage you because lots of times I think we get ourselves in a spot where we feel like we're the only one, right? I'm the only one in my workplace. I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only one in this situation. I am the only one that's trying to hold to Jesus. I'm alone in this. And what he is over and over again communicating to us is, you're not alone. I am right there with you, alongside you, ready to make defense for you. Now, notice with me, as Paul is speaking to Felix, he says to him, you have been judge of this nation for many years. This is my sense of humor. Uh, I love that Tertullus gives all this flattery, and Paul says, it is true, you have been judge. That's all, that's all he could say. It's like what my mom used to say. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Paul didn't have a lot nice to say about Felix. All he could say was, yes, you are. I, I agree. And so this was all he could come up with. And how often we get ourselves in conversations and we feel the need to elaborate and to go on when in reality we're flattering and it's, it's boarding on a lie. It would be better to just keep things short and kind than to go into some long story where we think we have to elaborate. One of the uh, early goings of this church, I uh, had a, a couple that showed up for the first time and the gentleman, I sought him out after church, and I shook his hand, and I said, thank you so much for coming. And he, and he looked at me in the eye, and he said, uh, you're welcome. Um, I don't think I've ever heard someone speak for 45 minutes straight. That was it. <laughs> no, that was great, or man, I really enjoyed it, or wow, what a church. It was, I don't think I've ever heard someone not shut their yapper for 45 minutes straight. I, at least he didn't lie. That was the good news. Now, they also never came back, but he didn't tell me a lie. He just said, I've never heard anyone talk that long before. So it's better to be short and kind than to elaborate and tell a lie. Now, verse 11. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And in verse 12, that they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in a synagogue or in, a, or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which now accuse me. And so what Paul is saying here is, I was in Jerusalem for almost two weeks, and there were no issues. I was in and out of the temple. I wasn't inciting a riot. I was in there worshiping my Lord and Savior right there, and no one had a problem until these guys came along, and oh, by the way, you don't actually have an eyewitness to any of this. It's all just hearsay. That's exactly what you're hearing right now, is what he tells Felix. Now, verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. In verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And so what Paul is saying is here, if you want to know what I'm guilty of, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what I'm actually guilty of. I'm guilty of being a follower of the way. That's what they called the early church. And they called them this because of the way in which they lived. They were sanctified, set apart. They looked differently. By the way, we should look differently when we interact. You, you shouldn't have to go out and wave the flag of telling everybody you're a Christian. They should just already wonder and curious about why do you live so differently? Why do you not 
speak the way everyone else speaks? Why do you not do the things everyone else does? Why is it you are so different? And, and this is what they saw in the early church. They were the way. They, they were sanctified, set apart. They were different by their entire appearance. Now, the next thing he mentions is that he was a believer in the law and the prophets. He was a believer in the scriptures. And oh, by the way, he slips this in. The same scriptures that they believe in, these are the scriptures that I believe in. So if you want to call me guilty, I am guilty of believing what God said. Every single bit of it, I believe it. Including, he puts this last statement in there, the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment of both the just and the unjust. This is what Paul is trying to communicate. I believe that there will be a final judgment. You may judge me right here, right now, Felix, but someday there will be a final judgment. In the first resurrection for the just, it's called the Bema Seat Judgment, where if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, protected by his blood, you get to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, those are going to be some tremendous words. Words that we don't deserve for sure, but words that he has promised to lay upon us. Well done, good and faithful servant. For the rest, in the second resurrection, there will be the final judgment that is called the white throne judgment, and those will be told, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I do not know you. You do not want to be there, by the way. <laughs> the Apostle Paul is saying, this is what I believe. There will be a resurrection of both good and bad, and they will be judged based upon their actions or the decisions that they have made. Now, in verse 16, Paul says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And so he's now going to say, Look, I have conducted myself in the same way always. In other words, I am the same uh, in my private life as I am in my public life, as I am in my church life, as I am in my relationship personally with Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you guys, if, if you've been caught up in a life of trying to keep things separated and compartmentalized, as someone who has tried my best to keep things separate in my life, I can tell you it's a complete disaster. When I want to say, look, honey, that's just how you have to speak on a job site in order to communicate, then you have to keep that life now separate from the way I conduct myself at home, or even worse yet, when, when nobody's around. I'm trying to keep all these balls balanced and these things separated. It leads to complete and total exhaustion. That's the reality of being a separate, a divided man, having a duplicitous mind. This is what Paul is saying, I have not lived like that. I have been the same. Whether you saw me here, there, anywhere, I have been the same guy. And I have tried my best, I've strived not to offend God or to offend man. Isn't that interesting? He says, I've lived with a good conscience with both God and man. And when you look throughout Scripture, you'll notice uh, these two are linked over and over again. In the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, I know you guys love to frequent the Old Testament, especially Exodus chapter 20. You look at the top ten list, what God does is he actually gives us a broken down list. The first four have to do with our relationship to him. Living in a good conscience with God. The next six have to do with living with a good conscience towards man. And the reality is if you desire, if you want to live at peace with man, 
You cannot do it unless you're at peace with God. And you cannot live at peace with God unless you're at peace with man. And so the two are linked for all of eternity. They're linked. In fact, when Jesus was asked, Lord, tell us the greatest commandment, they were trying to, they were trying to bait Jesus and get him to slip up. And they said, tell us the greatest. And what is, he says in Matthew 22 is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second commandment is likened to it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two things hang all the law and all the prophets. It's about loving God and loving people. That's what Paul is communicating. He wasn't trying to pander to people. He was trying to love people through his love for God. And so living with a good conscience. Now, verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring uh, alms and offerings to my nation, and in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. In verse 19, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else, let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. He's speaking of the Sanhedrin. Paul's saying, look, I was there in the temple minding my own business. I was bringing alms to the temple. I had been away for many years, and things were going just fine. I didn't have a mob, not a riot, nothing at all like it until uh, these guys decided to throw a fit against me. And he goes on to say, the people here gathered, they were not eyewitnesses. These men of the council, they didn't even see. Well, he went back to their own law. Deuteronomy 19 says that on the testimony of two witnesses is how you actually condemn someone of wrongdoing in the law. So even by their own law, they can't condemn me. If they think they can, have them come up and testify because everything that they are bringing about is hearsay. It's what they've heard happen, but they weren't actually present. Now, verse 21, Paul wraps up his defense. Unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So what Paul is referring to here is in chapter 23, after he had just cursed at essentially the high priest Ananias, called him an old bag of bones, he then brought up the topic of the resurrection in the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was made up of two different groups. The Sadducees, they were the materialists, the liberals, and the Pharisees, they were the staunch traditionalists. They called themselves the fence of the law. They, they looked to fulfill the law at every spot that they could. And so these two uh, did not agree about anything because the Sadducees didn't believe in the miracles they didn't believe in healing. They didn't believe in the resurrection, which is why they were so sad, you see. See, I have to do it. I have to. It's a must. But the, these two were strictly opposed on these topics. And so Paul, knowing this, knowing that he was a Pharisee and he believed in the resurrection, he lobs this bomb out there in the middle. He throws out this hot-button topic that he knows is going to get both of them arguing with one another, and guess who they forgot about? The Apostle Paul. So what he was saying is, if you're going to accuse me of starting a riot, and this has been debated, and it's not clear in Scripture if this was intentional by Paul or not. I would say he knew what he was doing. But whether he did or not, a riot broke out in the middle of the Sanhedrin over the topic of the resurrection. So this is what he mentions in verse 21. Now, in verse 22, 
When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. And so what Felix does, we're told, first of all, that he has an accurate understanding or he has a more accurate knowledge of the way. Now, how exactly he had a knowledge of the way, we don't know for sure. Uh, church history tells us that a guy named Simon the Sorcerer, we met him back in Acts chapter 8, was a good friend of Felix, and he would have shared with about the way. You might remember uh, Simon was the one that tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter. And Peter said, your money perish with you if you don't repent. Peter basically lambasted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is that same Simon, potentially, that would have given Felix additional information about the way. Now, you'll notice what Felix decided to do, and this is going to be a continual theme in his life, is he decided to wait when it concerned making a decision, especially an important one about Jesus. And so here he's got Paul right here. He knows exactly what the right thing is to do, and yet he says, I'm going to wait until I have more information. He's got paralysis by analysis. Now, verse 23. So when he, uh, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And so here's Paul. He's in uh, custody, and yet notice what Felix does is he gives him great liberty in the middle of his custody. Now, Paul's been in some jails before, right? I mean, we looked at him when he was in Philippi. He was left uh, naked, sitting on a cold concrete floor, if they even had concrete, sitting on a cold floor with his feet in stocks, where they would actually lock your legs at a spread position. Not all that enjoyable of a spot to be in. Paul knew what prison felt like. Now here he is. He's on the beach in Caesarea along the Indian Sea, and what Felix says is, give him liberty. Let him have a run of the place. Let, him, let his friends come in if they want to come in, uh, take care of him, and keep him under guard. And what you find is uh, this is actually the safest the Apostle Paul is in his entire ministry career. I bring that up to say that oftentimes what we look at and we think is bondage is actually God's protection. That God is, has a plan to protect us, to watch over us, to keep track of us, to keep us hemmed in, and to give us great liberty, great freedom within the parameters that he sets. That is actually what love looks like. We think about the law and the Old Testament, all the things Jesus taught, and go, man, that's a lot of rules. But the thing is, God's law is actually his love. We look at it like we must do these things. These are not must-dos. These are get-to-dos if you want to live and live freely live without bondage and if you've lived outside of his law ever before you know what kind of bondage that really is you know what kind of a trap that actually is thinking that this thing is going to bring me freedom or this thing is going to bring me joy or this is going to bring me peace if i just experience it and what happens is over and over again the peace and the freedom that it used to bring it gets to be less and after a while all that supposed freedom it actually turns into bondage because that's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to tie us up and make us ineffective. And so for the Apostle Paul, by just obeying, by just hanging out where Jesus wants him in that spot, he's now on the beach, 
getting a suntan, and he's got a tremendous amount of liberty to move around and to be able to, oh, by the way, write letters to churches. If you read through the prison epistles, they're written during this time frame, right? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the letter to Philemon. He's got tremendous freedom to be able to write and to communicate. Now, verse 25, 24. And Festus said, I think I got myself off. Oh, here we go, 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was, that's a beautiful name, by the way, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for her and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And now, as he reasoned with them, about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. And so what we see is uh, Paul sitting down with both Felix and uh, Drusilla. She's an an interesting character because she is actually the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, the the guy that constructed this palace. This is his great-granddaughter that's there. Her daddy, he was a lovely guy. He actually ordered uh, James to be cut in half, the first apostle to be martyred so not exactly a tremendous family she's called here a a jewish lady but in fact she was idumean she was half jewish half a descendant of esau and so she had this weird her entire family had this weird interaction with the christian faith and with judaism they could never quite figure it out mostly because they were busy living for themselves all the time and didn't give themselves over to the lord but here she and her husband, Felix, appear before Paul and have Paul come to them. And what Paul does is he reasons with them. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. This is what the Lord says about our faith. He says it's reasonable. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let us reason together. You've got an S-I-N problem. In fact, the first thing that Paul addresses before Felix and Drusilla is righteousness. Right living, living differently. Allowing the Lord to actually come in and cleanse you. And anytime you start to talk to people about righteousness, what we all do, at least I think we all do, immediately begin to think about all the ways we're not righteous, right? All the ways we've messed this thing up. That the, The movie begins to play back in our head like, ooh, that was bad, that was bad. That was, that was just this morning. That was awful. I mean, it's over and over again. Our lack of righteousness begins to come back up when we think of the righteousness of God. And the truth is, to stand before a perfect God is uh, terrifying. The idea of standing before God in judgment causes uh, many of us to quake in our shoes. And the reality is, it should, because he is holy, and he is perfect, and he is righteousness. And Isaiah 64 says that any righteousness we have... When we try to bring our righteousness about, it's as filthy rags. So even on our best day, trying to be as righteous as we can, it's a filthy rag to God. And not to be too uh, disgusting about that, but the, the Hebrew actually indicates that Isaiah is writing about a minstrel cloth. That's what he's saying our righteousness is in front of God. And when you think about appearing before him, I have this uh, belief about what hell actually is. Um, often I, I've, I've been taught that hell is the complete absence of God. I've come to believe that hell is actually the complete and full appearance of God without the perfect protection of Jesus Christ. 
It is the all-consuming fire. Hebrews 12 tells us our God is a consuming fire without the rock of Jesus Christ. You want to know why Moses was placed behind the rock as God's glory passed by? It was because if it was, was not there, if the rock of Christ wasn't between him and God, he would have been burnt up. It wouldn't have been beautiful with the Shekinah glory on his face. He would have been burnt alive in that moment because of his lack of righteousness. Now, that's a terrifying spot to be in unless you're a believer in Jesus. What Colossians chapter 3 tells us is that we are actually seated with him at the right hand of the Father. And I love this phrase, so I'm going to go read it for you. If I can find Colossians. Hey, I found it. Chapter 3 of Colossians says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. As the old man, we died. We've been put away, and now as the new man, we're actually hidden, protected. His atonement is now upon you hidden in Christ Jesus. So now when God looks upon you, here's the beautiful part. He doesn't see you at all. He sees the perfect blood of Jesus Christ covering you. All that replay in your mind that goes back over and over again, God doesn't see any single bit of that. He sees nothing but his son. What a beautiful thing. This is what the righteousness of God looks like. This Isaiah says, I'm going to give you robes of righteousness. This is what he's teaching us. Now, he goes on to mention two other things after he talks about righteousness in verse 25. He says, and self-control is the next thing he mentions. Now, he mentions self-control because he knows Felix has a problem with, you guessed it, self-control. He's a guy that is known for his temper. He's got a a terrible temper. And in fact, this is going to eventually cost him his throne. And I believe the Holy Spirit is giving him a little warning. Hey, bud, if you don't get this in check, if you don't get this in control, if you don't get yourself under control, it's going to cost you. You know, over and over again, he's doing that with us. He's communicating with us. He's trying to inform us of things that we need to be on the lookout for. And here for the Apostle Paul, he's saying, look, at first... It's going to look like purity, righteousness, letting him flow through you in your life. And you're going to know it's going to practically play out in self-control. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, this is what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says, let your gentleness, or sometimes translated graciousness, or forbearance, or patience, be known to all men, the Lord is at hand. Let yourself be in control. Have patience. Have forbearance others. Because why? The Lord is at hand. You want to know why we should be patient and, and under control and try to strive to have our life in control? Why should we want purity? Well, the reality is the Lord is at hand. Your day, my day is coming very, very soon. And it helps us to get the eternal into perspective. In fact, Paul is going to jump then to the next thing that ties to this. He's going to say that the judgment is at hand. Verse 25, he says the judgment to come. So he's mentioned purity. He's now mentioned self-control. And by the way, there's going to be a judgment coming. It's going to happen. And what Isaiah says in Isaiah 34 verse 4 is that all the heavens and all the earth are going to be rolled up like a scroll. Which means that for each and every one of us here today, this is the positive and enlightening part of the message, um, you're all 100% guaranteed to die. (laughs) All of us. 
from the time we're born, we immediately begin to die. Now, what, what is that time frame? What does that day look like? I have no idea. Neither do you. No man knows the day that's going to be our last breath or woman. But for each of us, it's a reality that we have to face. Now, in our society, over and over again, we try to do everything we can to distract ourselves, to think about anything else that we can to not think about judgment that is to come, to think about the fact that we are all dying. But the reality is, it's true. We are all dying, except those that are alive in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's trying to put this into perspective for Felix. Think about your life. Think about what's taking place. And look at his response at the end of verse 25. Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, verse 26, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul and that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix waited. Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. For two years, he's going to keep the Apostle Paul imprisoned, and he is going to uh, listen to him over and over again. But notice with me his initial response after he was afraid, or I like the King James better, he trembled, literally shook hearing what Paul said. As he was shaking, he said, I need to hear more later. He delayed a history, a life of putting things off and delaying and delaying and delaying is what Felix was known for. He had an opportunity to make a decision. And yet, now, verse 26, he's hoping that Paul is going to give him a bribe. Hey, I heard you gave a great uh, sum of money to the temple that you collected. Maybe you've got a few bucks for me. And so Paul would have nothing to do with the bribes. He knew he was where he was supposed to be. But what we see is Felix had chances to hear from Paul. He was able to listen to him over and over and over again until one day he wasn't. He had time until he did not have time any longer. And so often this is the trick that Satan pulls on us. You've got time. You've got time. You've got time until there is no more time. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2 is, today is the day of salvation. He says that because we don't know how much time we're going to actually get. And yet for Felix, he delayed and he put it off. And, and at first he trembled. I mean, first he was shaken by what the Holy Spirit did. But then the second time around, he was just probably troubled. And then probably the third time he was just bothered. And by the time it got to the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, it was, it was something to consider, and yet that initial reaction had gone away. You see, that's what delaying does. Our conscience gets more and more seared. We get used to hearing the message when we delay listening to the tug that God's put on our hearts. There's some of you that have done that with Christ Jesus before. I know I have. It only took me 35 years to get it figured out. But the delays and the putting it off and the time and time again saying, yeah, I got to get that right. I got to get that right. I got to get that changed. That eventually we just have a seared conscience. First Timothy 4.2 says that our conscience is seared like a hot iron set into place. That hardening of the heart that happens over and over again when we do not listen to his call. 
I want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, if you've put off actually answering the call for salvation, don't delay anymore. Make today the day. Make right now the time. Now, for many of you, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet there are things that God has put before you. There, there are things that he has called you into, and you have given a Felix response. You're not alone in that spot. I'm right there with you. Where we say, I need to hear more, Lord. I need you to give me something even greater, a greater sign. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. And yet all we're doing is putting off the goodness of what God actually has in store. I want to encourage you not to delay. When he shakes you to your core, when he moves upon your in your spirit and you know you, you tremble in what he's told you, act on that. Explore that in Scripture with him. Let him search your heart and direct you because he has got something tremendous in store for you. He's got people tremendous in store for you. So whether it's that relationship that you're worried about mending that thing again, or that work experience, you're not sure you can go back there or not. Perhaps it's a calling he's actually put on your life and you've delayed and you've put it off. I want to encourage you, it is not too late. And I know that it's not too late because you're still breathing. I've confirmed none of you have died during this message. So you still have an opportunity to respond. Make it today. So Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for what you're up to in our lives. Father, we thank you for another day to give our lives completely and totally over to you. Lord, to live differently, to be different, to follow you hard, Lord. We struggle so much with belief. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to be able to believe you've got something good in store. We are so convinced to keep these things separate and segmented off that if anyone knew, they wouldn't want to be with me or talk to me or relate to me. But the reality is, it is so much more dangerous to keep it separated. Father, please permeate into the very depths of our soul and let us be one person, one Christian, one conscience that is set on you. Father, we thank you for stories like this of delay that remind us what we need not do, that we need to turn while we have the chance. I'm certain for Felix, he thought he had one more chance I'm going to have one more opportunity to make this right until he did not. So Lord, please help us to be able to take that step of faith to make that decision in our life right now today, right where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, would you please stand?
faithful and good to come to you (laughs) in fact he's probably already right there with you right now so if you guys need prayer for any reason i'll be hanging around i'd be honored to get the opportunity to pray for you Uh, if not you guys have an awesome week god bless